Merry Christmas. Oh, come on. Merry Christmas. Excellent. That's the way to do it. All right. So when you're out on the street this week and you're talking to people in maybe your neighborhood or maybe you go into the workplace, that's the way to greet people because you know what statistics tell us? A lot of surveys have been done about this. People who don't go to church say that they would be more than willing to go to church if somebody would just invite them. So if you approach it with that kind of enthusiasm, like, wow, this is a great time of year to have somebody come to church with you, think in terms of who you might invite right now. Just mentally, just let it pop in your mind. Who might I want to come with me next weekend for the Christmas Eve services? Because that will be a great opportunity for them to hear the gospel story. I want to invite you to go in your Bible to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to look at the Christmas story. Even though your notes this morning might say we were going to Romans, we're not going to Romans, okay? So that's what it says in the bulletin. But the notes inside your bulletin, they're, they're actually reflecting Matthew. We're going to go to Matthew. If you don't have a Bible with you, they're up on the screen. The, the verses will be up there in just a minute. Or maybe you got it on your phone. You can follow along that way. We're going to go into Matthew, but I'm going to pray with you first before we take a look at the Christmas story. Let's pray together, New Hope. Father, I pray for everybody in this auditorium, everybody who's streaming online right now, that we're collectively your body. We're the body of Christ, and we're meeting together for the purpose of understanding your word. So we ask that you would work through us right now, that we would be able to set aside our agendas, our, our thought patterns would be separated from um, the things that we were involved with before we came here today, and that you would focus us and that our thoughts would be focused on you and your word. And that can only happen through the power of the Holy Spirit. Humanly, we just can't shut it out, Father. So we ask that you would focus us, that we would be attentive to what you want us to hear, that we would invite your teaching, and that you would lead us. So we ask for that in Jesus' name, through the power of the Holy Spirit who guides us. And all God's people said, amen. All right. So... You may feel like you know this story really well. You know, you come to church, you hear the Christmas story. Maybe if you were raised in church, you feel like you know it really well. But as long as I have breath and God gives me breath in my lungs, I'm going to tell the Christmas story at Christmas time because it's such an important part of the gospel. God coming to earth is a pretty critical component. You know, we'd have to all agree upon that. So John 1.14 gives us an emphasis on that. Not going to get to Matthew right away, but just keep your finger there. John 1.14 says, and the Word became flesh. Who's the Word, church? Jesus, yeah. We, we could put insert Jesus' name there. And Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. Now this is talking about an actual moment in history. This is the trigger point. And many people might think Christmas began at that point when God ripped open the, the night sky and angels burst on the scene in this just flash of light. Many people think that's when Christmas began. But actually, Christmas began in eternity. In eternity past, when God, the Creator, determined to rescue the very ones who needed to be rescued, the very ones He created, those who had fallen into sin. So the one who exists outside of time steps through the fabric of time and puts on flesh and becomes one of us. God the Son descended to earth and taking upon physical form. So this may be a newsflash to you, but Jesus didn't begin in Bethlehem. That's new information for a lot of people. Jesus didn't begin in Bethlehem. You might be thinking, where do you get that from, Mark? Well, right from God's word. Let me take you to Philippians chapter 2. You'll see it up on the screen. It says this, Christ Jesus, verse 6, 
who although he existed in the form of God, he's talking about before time, before time began, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. So don't let anyone ever tell you that Jesus is not God. If someone tells you that, take them to Philippians chapter 2. Maybe if you have your Bible open right now, you just write that verse down in the back of your Bible so you remember that. Philippians chapter 2 verse 6 says, Jesus... God the Son came down to this planet. So here's the thought I want you to keep in mind as we move into the Christmas story. According to the Bible, God the Son became Jesus the man. In theological terms, it's called the condescension of God. Now when you think of condescending, you might be thinking of something very, very negative. This is not negative. Think of it this way. All of God's interactions with his creator beings is a condescension. God has to condescend himself to interact with us. It's very essential that we understand this part of the Christmas story. God humbles himself to look even upon the angels. Psalm 113.5, you see that verse up on the screen? It says this, God humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and the things that are in the earth. Why? Because he's infinitely above everything, right church? God is infinitely above everything else. So all contact with his created beings is of the greater with the lesser. That is our God, the way that he interacts with us. So for God to have a relationship with fallen man is a condescension on a scale that we cannot begin to imagine. Uh, possibly that could make you feel kind of low, like you're like, wow, what am I, dirt? No, actually, this truth should make you understand that God loves you so much that he decided to leave his dwelling place and become one of us. Whatever else you may know about Jesus, do not leave here today without seizing this reality. It's what differentiates Christianity from everything else on planet Earth, that Jesus is God. If you get this down, it'll change your comprehension of Christmas absolutely forever. In a manner far beyond our understanding, the Creator takes on the form of the created. And if you don't get that, the Christmas story becomes nothing more than fable. It's nothing more than the story of Santa Claus or the story of the Easter Bunny at Easter time. You just don't want to put Christ in that category. So it's not a fable. So at New Hope, and this is a really critical component of this, at New Hope we teach what you believe about God really determines what you do next. In other words, what you believe about God really determines your actions. Let me flesh that out for you. What you believe about God determines the paths that you choose in life. What you believe about God determines how you choose to use your energies and your skills. What you believe about God determines how you manage your money, how you manage your relationships, how you manage your time. I'll, I'll make it real personal on my behalf. Personally, Mark Kring, I believe that the Creator God who dwells in unapproachable light and is attended to by myriads of angels, that very one relinquished His throne in heaven for me. This is a truth that you can respond to yourself with an amen if you believe this. Jesus left heaven for you. It's a great truth. It doesn't make you feel low about yourself. It's a reality. God came down to be with us. And he did that for two specific reasons. I want you to really focus in on these two reasons this morning. 
He did that because God is determined that we would know Him and that we would grow in Him. Those were His reasons, that we would know Him and grow in Him. And He didn't just send information. He sent Himself because He didn't want us to guess. He didn't want us to wonder. He said, I want you to know me and I want you to grow in me. The unfortunate reality is this. Many, many people that you know, many people that you interact with without the, within the course of a typical week, they don't know this basic truth. It was true in the first century. It's true today in 2016. Two categories here represented even in this auditorium today. People who miss out on having a relationship with God People who miss out on letting God deal with the sin issues in their life because they don't believe that God really came down to dwell among men. But among believers who do believe that God really did come, those individuals miss out on growing in their life with God for one reason, because they're so consumed with their own agenda. So we're going to look at some individuals who match those two categories that I talked about this morning by going into Matthew chapter 1. Because what you're going to find in this story is that God's invitation is incredibly consistent. Throughout time, He brings opportunities into your life, into my life, for us to interact with Him. Either to begin to have a relationship with Him or to grow in the relationship that we already have. If you miss that, to completely miss God's invitation is to have the apex of life's opportunity right in front of you and completely neglect it just because you've got too much going on in your life, and so you disregard it. So I want to take you into the lives of those two individuals that will help us to understand that in Matthew chapter 1, and I want to give you a little background so you understand what's going on here. We've got two individuals who both have the same opportunity in Matthew chapter 1, and they show us what it is to have God bring an opportunity before them. During the reign of Augustus Caesar, he lived during the first century, he decided to redistrict the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire at that time was not just that little territory that we think of when we think of Italy today. It was massive, incorporated parts of Africa, most of what we think of the Middle East, and then up into Europe. Roman Empire was really huge. Caesar, leading over the Roman Empire, decided he wanted more tax revenues coming into his empire. So he decided to redistrict his empire, began drawing new boundary lines, if you will. So as he's restructuring the empire, he issues a command. And his command is that he's going to take a census because he wants to know who's living within his new tax boundaries. And so that requires a young man who's a carpenter to come to Bethlehem. His name in the story is Joseph. And as he comes into Bethlehem, he has to be register himself for this census that Caesar Augustus has demanded will happen. He has a young woman with him. Her name is Mary. They're pledged to be married together. But they have not yet consummated the marriage physically. They're committed to each other, but the marriage consummation hasn't happened yet, so they haven't known each other in physical relationship. So when you come into verse 18 of chapter 1, you find a surprising detail in the story. Chapter 1 of Matthew 18, it says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child. Now stop right there. You've got the benefit of the book of Matthew in your hand. Joseph didn't have the book of Matthew, right? Joseph didn't know the story. He didn't know that the child is by the Holy Spirit. So you're looking at the collapse of a young man's dreams there. Nothing is going his way. To say he's confused is an understatement. He doesn't know the baby is by the Holy Spirit. 
Now remember, I told you that God is consistent in his invitation. He always presents opportunities throughout your life, either to begin a relationship with him or to grow in the relationship that you already have. From a human perspective, things are falling apart. From a spiritual perspective, God has just brought a major invitation into Joseph's life to allow him to participate with God. So you're looking at a man here with a choice. Circumstances have changed for him. This is not what I planned. This is not what I wanted for my future. This is not what I intended. Now, on the Joseph side of the story, I need to leave you hanging until Christmas Eve because we're going to come back to him at that time. Where I want to take you now is into the other individual's life, and his name is Herod. King Herod has the exact same opportunity before him. He has the opportunity to interact with God because God brings an invitation and lays it right in his lap. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1 gives us a very similar detail. So chapter 2 says this, Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Now Bethlehem is less than 10 miles away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital city. Herod's throne is in Jerusalem. Bethlehem is less than 10 miles away. Let, let's say Bethlehem is Williamston, okay? So less than 10 miles away, we have a town that's very accessible. Let me ask you this morning, if Jesus was in Williamston this morning, would you be here? Now, me either. If you were, you'd probably be by yourself because you would want to be where he's at, right? So Herod has this information that Jesus is born literally a few miles away. And what you're going to discover with the Herod side of the story is he's so consumed with his own agenda, he's going to totally miss the God opportunity right in front of him. Verse 1, let's go back into it and finish it out. At Matthew 2, it says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. That doesn't say that Herod jumped into his big white stretch limo and told the driver to floor it and get me to Williamston, does it? It doesn't say he's excited to go see Jesus. No, it says Herod freaked out. The word that's actually used in your notes, and you'll see it on the screen, is the word tarasso. The only Greek word I'm giving you today. And it's, think of a washing machine with an agitator in the center of the washing machine. That's the thought you should have. It roils the water. Okay, That's what's going on in Herod's heart. He is agitated. The waters are being stirred within him. Now catch this. The wise men have come to town because they want to worship the very thing that Herod is agitated by. So you've got a group of people who are celebrating what God's doing, and you've got an individual over here who is angry about what God's doing. So God's up to something extraordinary here. And just like Joseph, Herod has a choice. You notice that his reaction is affecting the people around him? Because when God brings interruptions into your life, when God brings opportunities, people are always watching you. See, it's always about more than just what God's doing in your life. It's about the individuals who are watching. And we're told, according to that verse right there, that all of Jerusalem is troubled. People are always watching when disruptions come your way to see how you're going to react. Now, here's just a little background for you on Herod the king so you can really appreciate the, the crux of this story. In 40 B.C., 
the Roman Senate and Caesar Augustus agreed to name him King of the Jews. So 40 years before Jesus is born, he's already got the title, and he's wearing the title very, very proudly. And this guy's got a real pride issue in his life. But where you come to this story, he's already in his 70s. He's nearing the very end of his life, and he is paranoid about his power. Now, we jump back into the story. We find this Herod is troubled because of the wise men who rolled up in town. They roll up with this entourage of Persian soldiers because wise men never went any place without an accompaniment of Persian soldiers, meaning they came from Babylon. They've come all the way across the Middle East to see this king, and they say a new king has been born. And so they begin asking questions. Look on the screen again at verse 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, isn't that the same title that the Roman Senate gave to Herod? Right? So somebody else is going to be wearing his name. Somebody else gets his title, King of the Jews. So the first thing on Herod's mind is find this child. So he calls a high-level cabinet meeting. Go with me into verse 4. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. So the advisory board that he's gathered together responds to him with verse 5. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea. See, they're given the street address. They're saying, this is where this guy's at. He's in Bethlehem in this region of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler. So you can read the rest later, but they give details. So here's the report. The advisory board has been assembled, and they say, yeah, Herod, a child, a child who's born with the right credentials, a child with the right ancestral background, born in the right location, that one gets the throne. So Herod has now a God situation in front of him. God has interrupted his life. There's a disruption that has come that he did not anticipate, and he needs to stop and ask, what do I believe about God? Because what I believe about God determines what I do next. One of my favorite theologians, a man who's still alive by the name of Henry Blackaby, Dr. Blackaby calls this the crisis of belief. When you hit a point, you're not sure if God is doing something in your life or not. You hit the crisis of belief. What do I believe about God? Because what I believe about God determines what I do next. I want you to see Dr. Blackaby's quote on the screen. This applies specifically to believers. God's invitation for you to work with him always leads you to a crisis of belief that requires faith and action. As a result, you must make major adjustments in your life to join God in what he is doing. So Herod has hit that place where the crisis of belief has kicked in. The interruption has come before him. Something outside of his control has happened, and he's left with a question. How do I respond to this? What am I supposed to do? And a believer in Jesus Christ should ask themselves at this point, can I grow in this situation? Is this for the benefit of God growing me and for the people around me who are watching me? Or for a person like Herod who's looking at this and saying, how do I manipulate this? How do I manage this in such a way that it serves my purposes? How do I take this situation and work it to my benefit? So I ask you this question this morning. If you were consulting Herod this morning, if you were in Herod's advisory room, and he was looking to you for counsel, how would you counsel him given the information that he has? What's the first thing you would tell him to do? The first thing I would tell him to do is pray, Herod. 
You better get on your knees and ask God what you're supposed to do with this situation. And here is why I want to use Herod as a counterpoint comparison for us this morning. Here's why I bring Herod before us as an example to counter him to Joseph. I want you to notice that Herod knows enough to consult Scripture. He knows enough to go to God's Word. He knows enough to go to God's people. He brings an advisory council before him of scribes and the high priest, the people who know the Word of God. So he goes to God's Word, he goes to God's people, and the advisors show him truth. But as you know the story, if you've followed it before, he doesn't follow God's directive. See, he only wants just enough God in his life to serve his own purposes. He wants to manage the situation as opposed to surrender to the situation. So consider this, and I think this is even more vile. He knows this child is the Messiah. He understands who this baby is. Do you notice as you look at verse 4? He asked the chief priest and the scribes specifically, where is the Messiah to be born? Because he understands what this prophecy means. God's up to something. Go with me to verse 7. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. Do you believe him? Right? No, you can't believe Herod. Why? Because you know him if you studied the Bible at all. Why call the Magi secretly? Because his advisory board knows him. They know he's brutal. They know he's bloodthirsty. And they know what he will do. So he's bringing in the Magi secretly. How amazing would it be, church, if you went to Matthew chapter 1 and these verses that we're looking at and Matthew chapter 2 and you found that as a result of all the information that he received, when he recognized, wow, God's up to something, you find that Herod went to his knees. What, what if you found that he gathered together the Magi and he gathered together his advisory board and said, let's pray about this because God's up to something. I can sense it. I can feel it. How amazing would it be if you read that Herod actually led a group of worshipers up to Bethlehem to bow before the Christ child. But instead, that's not what you find. As you move through verses 9 through 15, what you find is he plots a massacre. We're going to jump back into the story, but we're going to do it at verse 16 because by this point, Joseph has escaped and run to Egypt. And the wise men, they've exited out the back door so they can save their life. And we find verse 16 telling us this. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. So by the next evening, Herod's patience has been exhausted, and he loses control because of this reason, because of his agenda. This is a disruption to his life. It wasn't what he wanted, and his pride gets in the way, and therefore his judgment becomes blinded, and he can't even see straight. So he thinks he's been tricked the word that's used in the Greek language means to be made sport of or to be mocked. That's his interpretation of what he thinks they did to him, that they tricked him. Actually, what's going on is they're trying to get out of the town for saving their life. And he becomes furious. So he commits one of the bloodiest acts of his life. Remember, Bethlehem is only a few miles away, right? 
close enough you can hear the hoofbeats. You can hear the soldiers ride out of town and arrive in Bethlehem. And you can hear the screams of the mothers as they're running, clutching their babies. Herod has not only rejected God's invitation, he sets himself against God because he's rejected the activity of God in his life. We're told that the babies were two years old and under. How did he do that? Because of what he learned from the Magi? Because of what they told him about the star? And they kill all the male babies because he's not going to take any chances whatsoever. One of the many things that we learn about God as we work through the Bible, New Hope, is that God is never unaware. God is never caught by surprise, is He, church? He can't be surprised. So as you go back to the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament, written 600 years before this incident, God already knew what Herod was going to do. God already knew Herod's personality and he moved in Jeremiah's heart to write things like you're going to see in the Matthew passage on the screen. Matthew 2, verse 17. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. God is never surprised. He knows the heart of every single individual. He even knew what Herod was going to do. He knew what Herod's choice would be. Herod doesn't know it. He's merely a pawn in Satan's scheme. God makes a move and Satan makes a counter move. He's trying to use Herod as a puppet. God makes a move. Herod makes a, Satan makes a counter move to try and destroy the work of God. And we're told Herod comes to his end in verse 18 and 19. It says this, when Herod died... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, verse 20, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. In the Bible, you get a detail of how Herod died. Not much information, but somewhat. But you get a lot more information from history. There was a historian that lived in the first century by the name of Josephus. And he wrote a book called Antiquities. He had actually been hired by Caesar to write a history of the first century. And I want you to see his quote on the screen because you'll get an idea. You'll especially appreciate this if you're a physician this morning. This was the description of his death. Herod died of this. Ulcerated entrails, putrefied and maggot-filled organs, constant convulsions, foul breath, and neither physicians nor warm baths led to his recovery. If my wife was in here this morning, she'd be saying, ew, like gross, right? And I know some of you are thinking that way right now. Why they refer to warm baths here, I think it's because Rome pretty much believed that warm baths would fix everything. Kind of like my grandma used to believe that chicken noodle soup would fix anything. Oh, you broke your arm? Drink some chicken noodle soup, right? That warm baths were a big part of their culture. But catch this, five days before Herod dies, five days, he's nearing the end of his life. And he decides that his son is plotting against him. And he decides to have his son executed five days before he has to turn the throne over to him because he is so consumed with rage and jealousy and his own agenda. Even in his death, he executes his own son. That's why you find Augustus Caesar saying this about Herod. It is better to be one of Herod's dogs than to be one of his children. Herod didn't have to end this way. 
Now, admittedly, guys like this make us feel pretty good about ourselves, right? We, we may think, well, <laughs> I may have issues in my life, but at least I'm not like that, right? Well, the truth is, church, we're all sinners in need of a Savior, right? Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're no better than Herod, are we? We're, we're all in need of a Savior. It's just his, his sins are right there on the page for us to read. Here's what I know about Herod. I've studied this guy a lot throughout the course of my life. Here's what I know about him for sure. Herod didn't believe the song that you sang a few minutes ago. Michael led us in a song, God is for us. God is with us. This is our story. This is our song. Herod doesn't believe that song that you sang. See, this is what he believed about God. What he believed about God is that God was operating outside of his best interest because he had his agenda. He had his goals, the things that he wanted to do in the course of his week. So he believed that when God brought an interruption in his way, it wasn't in his best interest. It was outside of his interest. And because he believed that, he destroyed the relationships around him. And because he believed that, his life is consumed with anger and with jealousy because he didn't believe that God was for him. He believed that God was against him because what you believe about God determines what you do next. And what he believed about God shaped his actions. Herod absolutely missed it, church. He absolutely missed the apex of life's opportunity right in front of him. But you don't have to. You can seize upon God's invitation. I know that there's two groups represented here today, and I'm going to speak to both groups, both those who have a relationship with God and those who do not yet have a relationship with God. I'll speak to that group first. If you're in the place where you don't yet have a relationship with God, you have a responsibility this morning. And your responsibility is this, to respond to the information that God has made available to you. There's a verse that's gonna go up on the screen that I want you to see is the heart of the reason that God condescended to planet Earth. And this verse is 1 Timothy 1.15. Here is why Jesus came. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Amen? Amen. That's why He came. That's why God the Son condescended to planet Earth and put on flesh and became one of us. It is a trustworthy statement, the Bible said. Jesus came to show God's mercy. You want forgiveness of your sins today? That's why He came, to draw you into a relationship, and you can begin a relationship with God today. There's free Bibles in the back on the table back there. There's envelopes inserted in there with notes that I wrote specifically to tell you how to take the next step. Take one of those Bibles with you when you leave today. It'll guide you how to make the next step. How do I have a relationship with God? You want a brand new beginning? God's gonna tell you how to do that. Now, here's the second group. If, if you're a believer in Jesus, and I know that's the vast majority of you in the auditorium today, if you're in that place where you've got a, a relationship with God, I want you to hear this. Don't leave without this really settling with you. God presents opportunities for each of us to join him in his work. It doesn't matter at what stage you're at in your growth. God brings opportunities your way. You might think it's an interruption to your life. God says, no, it's an opportunity for you to grow in your walk with me. So he puts the invitation out there saying, join me in my work. God invites us in spite of our flaws. That's a good thing, isn't it? 
In spite of who we are, God invites us. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. It's just one simple thing. Begin by saying to God, what do I need to surrender to you today? If you're a Christ follower, you're in that place where you have to ask him, God, what do I need to surrender? My agenda? My pride? Is there a relationship issue you need to surrender to God so that he can work through you? So I'm going to give you an action step so that God might be able to work through you in the week ahead of you. Here's, I know it's a busy week, right? There's a lot going on. Here's, here's the action step I'm going to give you. Slow down. Slow down and consider that perhaps the interruption that comes your way this week might just be God inviting you to join him in his work. I'm going to use myself as an example. I'm driving home on Tuesday this last week and there's a young man about 30 years old. He's in the ditch, right? So I pull up alongside him um, just off from Schumann Road, and his car's down inside the ditch, and I rolled my window down, and I said, hey, can I help you? No, I'm okay. And I said, well, can I, can I give you a ride? No, no, I'm, I'm set. He's digging away. He's got a shovel. He's trying to dig his car out. And I said, do you have a tow strap? Because I had a vehicle with four-wheel drive in it. And he said, no, I don't own one. Now, in my mind, I'm thinking, I only live a mile away, and I've got a tow strap at home. And I said, well, uh, um, let me know. Can I help you? And he said, no, I'm good, man. It's all right. right." So I put my window back up, and I'm driving down Gulick Road, and here's the mental war that's going on in my mind. Um, I've got a tow strap at home. I can go get that and come back and pull him out. Maybe I can have a conversation with the guy. The other side of my mind is, um, Mark, you've got a lot going on. You've got a lot to do today, and I'm on my way home to study God's Word, right? Okay? So uh, I'm going to go study God's word about how to speak to you guys when God puts this opportunity right in front of me to interact. That haunted me all day long that I didn't turn around and go back and help that guy. I could have, but my agenda got in front of me. So God made this a hard week for me because I've been thinking back over how in the world I could have interacted with that guy. I don't know how God's going to interrupt your week this week. Maybe he already has, but look at his own interruptions as God bringing an opportunity before you for you to respond and say, God, what are you trying to do here? How do you want me to respond? Because I've hit that crisis of belief point. Are you inviting me at this moment to join you in your work? I don't know what it looks like for you, but that's how I'm going to pray for you this morning. I'm going to pray for myself that way, right? Because we're all there. We're all in it together. How do we respond to God in these situations? It may be just as simple as the person God laid on your mind when I asked you who should you invite to the weekend services for Christmas Eve. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for making your word real and making it come alive. Any one of us could insert ourselves into this story. We can find ourselves in this story. How we react and respond to what you're doing It's obviously a choice you've given us. But what we ask for, Father, is the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us to give us the capacity to respond as you would respond. God, bring the interruptions. We we invite them. At least I invite it for myself. I, I don't know about everyone else. But I ask for us in the midst of those that we would respond as you would, that we would advance your kingdom, that we would serve in the way that you would serve. Thank you for the time that we're able to be together, God. I ask for your blessings upon these individuals who've spent time studying your word this morning. We ask for that in the mighty name of the one who saved us, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said,
Amen. Have a great week, New Hope.